0: Welcome to PD Insider, the podcast edition. In each episode, we bring you conversations with experts in the law firm professional development community so that you can stay current on industry trends, topics, and innovations.
1: In this episode, PLI's Craig Miller speaks with Michelle Wimes, who explores the theory behind implicit bias and the firm-wide practices which can be used to combat it. Michelle explains the unconventional method she's implemented, mindfulness and meditation, and the data-driven support for their effectiveness. Michelle and Craig's conversation offers deep insight and the concrete tools for implementing mindfulness exercises and
0: measuring their success at your firm. Welcome. We're pleased to have you join us today. Thank you, Craig.
1: I'm happy to be here.
0: A number of professional development teams have developed and deployed wellness programs at their firms. Some programs have included uh, mindfulness techniques. And you've worked specifically with these techniques to deal with unconscious bias. First, what is unconscious bias? Can you help us with a working definition?
1: Yeah, yeah, so I like to think of unconscious bias as a mental shortcut. Um, they unconscious biases the attitudes the judgments and the stereotypes that we possess without even really knowing it and I I should say that we all have bias we all have unconscious bias so there is bias that can be in favor of something and bias that can be against something it can be explicit which is conscious bias it can be implicit, which is unconscious bias, and really it's just the way we lean toward or, or away from something um, depending on what that is. And so um, one of the things that we have to take into account with unconscious bias is that we all are susceptible to the messages that we get from our culture. So whether it's the family that you grew up in, the environment that you grew up in, um, your education, the media, all of these influences shape our biases and whether or not we lean toward or away from certain
0: things. So how does unconscious bias operate both personally and on an organizational level, yeah, sure. So personally, how it how
1: unconscious bias operates is that we all have bits of um, inaccurate information and stereotypes about certain groups that are stored in our brains, and this and research has, has proven this. And um, and we tend to favor groups that are like ourselves, and so those are called the in group, so to speak. And then the out group are folks that are marginalized, folks that are stigmatized in society that don't necessarily favor us and so I would I would say people in the LGBTQ community for instance or um, people in, uh, people of color in that community particularly African Americans and so um, I want to play a game with you right quick and we didn't practice this and you have no idea that I'm getting ready to do this but let's just say I'm gonna ask you a series of questions and I'm um, and, and I want you to tell me which group is more powerful and which group is more privileged so if I say black or white what group would you say is more powerful white if I say male or female which group would you say is more powerful male if I say gay or straight which group would you say straight if I say rural or urban urban okay if I say citizen or um, alien what would you say citizen citizen okay so we didn't talk about that before this filming right and, and and you knew which group was in the in group and you knew which group was in the out group. And that's the way bias works, is that we all have these messages of who's more powerful and who's less powerful, who's more privileged and who's less privileged. And then the problem is, is that when we interact with each other and we're in an organization where that bias comes to play and we don't know that the bias is happening, right? So when you combine the bias with social privilege, whether your privilege is because you're in the in-group, because you happen to be a white male, a white straight male, um, or whether you're in the out-group, if you're in an environment and in an organization where that bias is happening, it can, come, it can have very powerful um, effects. So I'll give you an example. Let's say that you're in law enforcement. It could create an, a, a situation where laws are being unevenly enforced, where certain groups of people are being arrested at a higher rate. It could lead to police brutality when you're talking about certain communities of color. Um, another example might be in um, just the enactment of laws in general. If you're an elected official, you might, if you are biased, end up in a situation where you're enacting laws that favor a certain group of people and don't favor an, another group of people. If, you're, if you have an organization and you are biased against women, then women may not be promoted at the rate that men are promoted, or women may not even receive the same pay as men receive. So that's kind of how it operates on an organizational level and on a personal level.
0: And it's really helpful. Uh, so how do law firms address unconscious bias in the workplace?
1: Yeah, so what I think, at least at Ogletree, what we try to do is we try to give everybody a common language. We want people to understand the concept of implicit bias. You know, what is bias? How does bias show up along the talent management um, spectrum? So when you're pooling your candidates, for instance, how does bias show up? Are you favoring a certain kind of candidate to even, before you even invite them into the interview? When you're interviewing folks how does bias show up and then we carry that forward and we look at how bias shows up in the developmental phase and the performance management phase and then toward the end when you're advancing and promoting people so what we do is we have all kinds of e-learning modules that 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 um, our attorneys can engage in self-study we tend to keep those pretty small so they will be anywhere from six minutes to about 15 minutes it's the micro learning Um, and so we we teach about implicit bias what it is how it shows up along that talent management spectrum. And then we also have group learning. Um, we bring people together for lunch and learns. Um, we've done that with offices. Um, we've done that with practice groups. We've done that with um, departments um, in the firm. And um, we also have leadership training. So we do that in our attorney retreats, our diversity retreats. Um, And what we're doing there, Craig, is really just, again, giving folks a common language so that they understand. We're also giving them tools. There are things like the intercultural developmental inventory, what they call the IDI. There are things like the implicit association test, the IAT, and having our lawyers take those assessments and (laughs) self-assess and self-identify what their biases are and how they show up. And so I think that's been pretty successful. And and we've also trained our um, leadership, bringing our diversity committee together, our professional development steering committee together, our management committee together as well, and doing that kind of training.
0: I understand you've also been able to use certain techniques of mindfulness to work against implicit bias. Yes,
1: yes. So, so I want to start by talking about like what is mindfulness first of all, because I, I want to make sure we have a common definition. And how I define mindfulness is really just that non-judgmental. It's paying attention in a non-judgmental, balanced way right? And it's remaining open and curious and kind as you're paying attention. And it takes a special kind of attention to do that because once you start to, to, to stop yourself and really do that, you realize that you're not as unbiased as you think you are. We're, we're not just neutral observers that are just kind of neutrally observing the things that are happening to us in our lives. And so when you take that moment and you can step back, that's what mindfulness is. And so we're teaching our lawyers to just really be in the present moment and be open to what is happening without judging. And so if you can, if you can catch yourself before you start to judge a person or a group, then you're gonna engage in much more inclusive behavior, right, including behavior versus judgmental behavior.
0: So you're able to reveal unconscious bias if you're mindful and you've been sort of trained to think through what you're doing and act in a certain way.
1: That's right. That's right. And in fact, there have been a couple of studies that have been done and I want to talk about those. Um, There was a study done in 2015 by um, Adam Lukey and Brian Gibson. And it was a Central Michigan University study. And what they found was there's a special kind of mindfulness. It's called loving kindness meditation, LKM. And what they did in that study was they had people engage in a 10 minute loving kindness meditation, both before they took the implicit association test and after they took the implicit association test. And what they found was there was an increase in the amount of mindfulness in the participants and a decrease in the amount of bias. And so you. I'm sure you're wondering, well, how does that happen? Well, what happens is, is that when you become more aware of your thoughts and your feelings and your emotions and your bodily sensations, what you're doing is you are disrupting those automatic connections that we talked about earlier, rich versus poor, white versus black, you know, and the in group and the out group. So instead of making an automatic connection that this person is less powerful or that group is less, uh, more powerful, you are able to disrupt that with the mindfulness. And so what loving kindness meditation does is it says, okay, I am going to focus on a certain group of people and I am going to send loving kind messages to that group and so the, the meditation is actually taking the time to, at, over um, uh, a regular interval whether it's 15 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes and it's choosing your audience so your audience could there's, there's five types of audiences there's yourself there is a benevolent audience which is someone that i know and someone that i like and i respect there's a neutral audience there's a difficult audience somebody that you have difficulty and challenges with and then there's all beings and so you take a a, a group of mantras and, and let's say for instance you say things like may you be happy right may you live at ease may you be healthy may your life be one of healthiness and happiness. And so you direct that mantra over that 15-minute interval to whatever audience it is that you choose, whether it's for yourself that you need it in the moment, whether it is um, toward a group that is normally marginalized or ostracized in society or LGBTQ community, for instance, or people of color, and you do that over a regular interval for a certain amount of time, and that has been found to reduce bias. Interestingly enough, so that's what the um, Central Michigan study showed and that was with regard to age and that was with regard to race. And then there was another study that was done in 2016, it was the STEL study, and they directed that to toward um, black people in particular. And what they found, there was a seven-minute loving-kindness meditation that was directed specifically to black people being the audience. And they also found a decrease in bias and an increase in mindfulness after engaging in that seven-minute meditation.
0: I think that's really important, too, that there are actually metrics that can be uh, pointed at right. to demonstrate that there is effectiveness associated with these techniques. Absolutely. Uh, because one thing we know about the lawyer personality is that there is an element of skepticism uh, yes. that's an inherent there. And mm-hmm. uh, have you had to overcome uh, any types of skepticism in relation to these techniques.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, by by nature, lawyers are skeptical. I'm I'm a former practicing lawyer. Um, You know, I I don't think that I meet the traditional kind of lawyer. Um, I don't think I'm as skeptical as the traditional lawyer, I would say, which is why I don't practice law anymore. But yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that um, we are, lawyers in general are skeptical. And I think that one of the ways that we've been able to kind of get around that is um, we have a leader who embraces embraces these um, efforts and it has no problem with communicating that and trying to get other leaders to embrace these efforts as well and I think that's always important when you have leadership at the top that believes in well-being efforts and and believes that um, having a well-being culture, having a a culture that emphasizes wellness creates and fosters a diverse and inclusive culture. And so once you can get people to make that connection, that skepticism kind of goes
0: away. Could you talk a little bit more about uh, some examples at Ogletree? Yeah. uh, Where they've endorsed and and, uh, supported the use of mindfulness to disrupt bias?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So I think at Ogletree, um, there's been a couple of different things that we've done. I think, first of all, organizationally, we have, we signed the ABA pledge. And so that was huge when that pledge came out. And then right after we signed the pledge, we said, okay, we need to we need to get busy and start putting some of these practices into play. And so um, we created a wellness initiative. It's called Thrive at OD, Thrive at Ogletree Deacons. And so we have an intranet site um, that has a wealth of resources for our lawyers, um, things on suicide prevention, things on healthy eating, um, um, financial well-being, and so really all of the the six or seven prongs that the ABA pledge talks about, we have resources for all of that. Um, immediately, we also created like um, micro learning modules on the ABA pledge and what that pledge is about and then also on um, giving people examples of five ways to implement healthy habits in their lives right and so I like the micro learning because you know lawyers especially in a law firm we're billing in six minute increments or seven minute uh, six minute increments for the most part and so we try to keep those modules around six to 13 minutes and so it really makes them more likely to do it if it if it's um, you know in that that smaller um, amount of time so that's just organizationally creating the structure so that people will be able to focus on well-being and focus on wellness. Another thing that we did was we said, OK, we want folks to embrace this as a lifestyle and we want people to actually try meditation. So we need to create a safe space where people can do this. And so one of the things that we did w- was we engaged in a pilot mindfulness meditation project. And we did that over a six to eight week period. We had a number of offices. We had 53 offices and we had offices signed up. I think from uh, I think there were 15 to 18 offices that signed up for this pilot Mindfulness Project. And they agreed to meditate f- at least five minutes a day over six to eight weeks long. And so it was pretty amazing how many attorneys participated in that. And We were able to do a study afterwards to kind of, we did a pre-assessment and we did a post-assessment. And we did see that the for the control group, that the levels of stress went down, levels of resiliency went up as a result of this. So I think, um, I love the fact that we created that safe space for that to happen and then I think the third thing that we're in the process of doing is really to look at our processes and our procedures and our policies right um, one of the things that we have, very similar to many firms, is we have benchmarks. And our benchmarks are, you know, we provide our associates when they come in to work with us a list of the skills and experiences that they can expect to have from first year through eighth year. So it gives them ownership of their careers, right? Because it's they can say, oh, I should be taking a deposition when I'm a fifth year, or I should be, you know, um, doing a second chairing a trial when I'm a sixth year, what whatever it is, these are, these are substantive legal benchmarks that we expect them to get. So one of the things that we are doing is embedding um, self-awareness, mindfulness, emotional intelligence, all of those kinds of skills that people can cultivate into the benchmarks because our benchmarks not only address the substantive legal skills, they also address firm building skills and diversity and inclusion skills that people can hone as well.
0: So they're being integrated into the curricula integrated. and not sort of standalone, And not
1: stand alone, exactly. And we do have one other initiative that we came up with a couple of years ago. Um, we have a what's called a, I call it the DAP. It's the Diversity Action Plan. And um, it was developed because a lot of attorneys would call me or see me at a retreat and say, hey, I wanna help with the firm's diversity efforts, but I don't know what to do. Like, can you give me something to do? So we developed this concrete list of action items and it gives them things that they can learn, things that they can do, things that they can watch, people that they can mentor, just very concrete, specific ideas. So one of the things that we've done is we've embedded mindfulness within that. And so what we say is, is that use mindfulness as a tool to interrupt bias? And so, what we do is we break it down and we say, first, you have to start noticing when implicit bias shows up for you, because that's the, the part about mindfulness is that you're noticing something that is typically not noticed, right? Implicit bias is—we just talked about that. You know, it's unconscious; people don't know it. But if you set an intention to notice when you're reacting to difference and how you're reacting to difference, that will make it more um, explicit for you. Does that make sense? Sure. So, Because because I think that typically, um, when we encounter difference, there's a tendency to tense up, right? There's a tendency to judge because that person's not like me, that group is not like me. But if you can stop yourself, if you can catch your breath and you can say, why am I judging this person? Or, or why, what about this situation is making me feel uncomfortable? So we build that into the DAP, that they are to take a pause, to really notice when bias is showing up for them, and then we ask them to read the, the, the Central Michigan study, we ask them to read the cell study, and then we also ask them to download a mindfulness app whether it's Simple Habit, whether it's Headspace, whatever it is, to download an app, and then we also ask them in that DAP to start engaging in a regular mindfulness practice. And we explain in that DAP that mindfulness is a tool to start to interrupt bias. You can never remove bias, but you can at least get yourself to the point where you can stop and interrupt it. Right.
0: Does that You make can sense? manifest these thoughts, uh, then you can address them. Absolutely. If they remain latent, then if you they really remain, have no way to address
1: them. That's exactly right, that's exactly right. And we talk about in that DAP too, um, the triangle of awareness. And so um, the research talks about this, that with the triangle of awareness, you know, you're aware of your thoughts, you're aware of your emotions, and you're aware of your bodily sensations. And so if you can, in any given moment, stop and pause and think about, you know, what am I thinking? What are the emotions that this is bringing up for me? How is my body reacting to this? You can stop yourself mm-hmm. from reacting in a way that is, um, that is where you're more vulnerable to vi- bias. Because basically, I mean, we've got a lot of behavioral ethics research out there that, that tells us that, um, you know, when folks are stressed out, they make bad decisions. So when we are stressed, we don't eat well. When we are stressed, we may do things like rolling through a stoplight rather than actually coming to a full stop. And the same thing happens with regard to diversity and inclusion. When we are faced with differences, we are more likely to act with bias than not if we're not healthy, if we're not mindful, if we're not paying attention to how things are showing up for us in that triangle of awareness.
0: So you've uh, talked about Ogletree as adopted, adopting these, these techniques and what do you see across the, uh, uh, the spectrum of law firms generally? Do you find the same sort of uh, uh, willingness to participate or do you, do you see it uh, as sort of coming in, a, in, in sort of a slower wave? I think that across the industry, you're starting to see, um,
1: because of this ABA report and because of the toolkit that they've released, I think, and that toolkit, by the way, is amazing. There are so many great examples in there of things that legal organizations can do. Everybody from judges and the judiciary to law schools to law firms, I think people are trying, they're willing, they're open, and they're trying to to incorporate a lot of that into their, their organizations.
0: So it's interesting. So across the whole legal infrastructure, you see- uh, I do. Adoption. I uh, do, I do. Okay, great. Any predictions for the future, how you see this going? And if we got together in five years from now, or 10 years from now, where do you think uh, this type of movement uh, would stand within the profession? Yeah,
1: I think, I think if we get together in the next five years or so, I think what's gonna happen is, I think you're gonna see clients kind of get on this bandwagon, and clients start to look at their law firms and say, just like they've done with diversity and inclusion, right? We've seen a lot of clients that have said, um, we want our cases staffed with diverse lawyers, and get Guess what? You know, if they're not staffed with diverse lawyers, we will take our business elsewhere. We've seen a lot of that with the legal profession in the last five to ten years. I think you're gonna see a lot of that with clients in the future. I think clients are going to be demanding that law firms uh, create better you know, cultures where lawyers are healthier, living stress free. Because what does that do? That means that lawyers are better able to serve their business better, right? And to provide excellent client service. So if I had any prediction, I think that's kind of where we're going. Um, We we are in a um, very volatile industry right now. There's a lot of change that's happening we have all these alternative legal service providers that that, that are out there and are kind of disrupting um, the legal industry um, but but I see law firms partnering with clients on these kinds of initiatives and supporting each other so
0: ultimately too as you can tie uh, these initiatives to the business needs of the law firm and that's the, right and the client you have a, a better pathway to success as well. I agree yeah absolutely well that's great well yeah. thank you
1: Thank you so much. My it's pleasure. been my pleasure to be here.
0: Great, I'd like to thank my guest, Michelle Wimes of Ogletree Deacons for sharing her insights. We look forward to you joining us for another edition of PLI's PD Insider. This is Craig Miller with the Practicing Law Institute. Thank you.